Chapter Nine, Part Two of the Sword of Antietam. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie McLean in Denver, Colorado. The Sword of Antietam by Joseph A. Altschuler. Chapter Nine: Across the Stream, Part Two. It was several hundred yards down to the Antietam, and luckily the ribbon of bushes held out. But when they were halfway to the stream, a thick, dark figure rose up before them. Dick, in an instant, recognized Sergeant Whitley. "'We want to get a nearer view of the enemy,' said the boy. "'I'll go with you,' said the sergeant. "'I'm on what may be called scouting duty. Besides, I've a couple of friends down there by the river, but on the other side.' "'Friends on the other side of the Antietam? What do you mean, sergeant?' "'I was scouting along there, and I came across him. Only one, in fact, is an old acquaintance, and he's just introduced me to the other.' "'That's cryptic.' I don't rightly know what cryptic means, but I guess I don't make myself understood well. In my campaign on the plains against the Indians, I had a comrade named Bill Brayton. A Tennessean Bill was, and a fine feller, too. Him and me have bunked together many a time, and we've dug out of the snow together, too, after the blizzards was over. But when we saw the war coming up, Bill had fool notions. Said he didn't know anything about the right and wrong of it, guessed there was some of each on each side, but whichever way his state would flop, he'd flop. Well, we waited. Tennessee flopped right out of the Union, and Bill flopped with it. I felt powerful sorry when Bill told me good-bye, and so did he. I ain't seen or heard of him since, till to-night, when I was cruising down there by the side of the river in the dark and keeping under cover of the bushes. Had no intention of shooting anybody, just wanted to take a look. I saw on the other side a dim figure walking up and down, rifle on shoulder. Thought I noticed something familiar about it, and the longer I watched, the surer I was. At last I crept right to the edge of the bank, and laying down, lest some fool who didn't know the manners of our war took a pot-shot at me, I called out, "'Bill Brayton, you thick-headed rebel, are you well and doing well?' "'You ought to have seen him jump.' He stopped walking, dropped his rifle in the hollow of his arm, looked the way my voice come, and called out, likewise in a loud voice, "'Who's calling me a thick-headed rebel? Is it some blue-backed Yankee? You know we see nothing of you but your backs.' "'Come out in the light, and I'll let some sense into you with a bullet.' "'Oh, no, I won't,' says I, still laying close and not minding his taunt about seeing our backs only. "'You couldn't hit me if I stood up and marked the place on my chest. "'Nothing will save you but them days on the plain and the blizzards "'when you was more useful with a shovel than you are with a rifle. "'Cause tomorrow at sunrise we're going to cross this little river "'and tie all you fellows hand and foot and take you away as prisoners to Washington.' That made him mighty mad, but the part about the blizzards on the plains set him to thinking, too. "'Who in Thunder Nation are you?' says he. "'You're Bill Brayton of Tennessee fighting in the rebel army when you ought to know better,' says I. "'Now who in Thunder Nation am I?' "'Sufferin' Moses,' says he. "'That voice grows more like his every time he speaks. It can't be that empty-headed galoot Dan Whitley who never knew nothing about the rights and wrongs of war and had to go off with the Yanks.' "'It's him and nobody else,' says I, as I rose right up and stood there on the bank, "'and mighty glad am I to see you, Bill, and to know that your fool head ain't knocked off by a cannonball.' He surely jumped up and down with pleasure, and he called back, "'The good Lord certainly watches over them that ain't got any sense. "'Dan, you flat-headed, hump-backed, round-shouldered, thin-chested, knock-kneed, club-footed son of a gun, "'I was never so glad to see anybody before in my life.' His eyes were shining with delight, and I know mine was, too. Reunions of old friends, who, for all each know, have been dead a year or two, clean blowed to pieces by shells, or shot through by a hundred rifle bullets, are powerful affectin'. 
He come down to the edge of the river, and he shot questions across at me, and I shot questions at him, and I felt as if a brother had riz from the dead. And as we can't shake hands, we reaches out the muzzles of our guns and shakes them toward each other in the most friendly way. Then another picket comes up, fellow by name of Henderson from Mississippi. Bill introduces him to his good old pal, and we three have a friendly talk. Guess they're down there yet, if you want to see him. I liked that fellow Henderson, too, though he was a powerful boaster. All right, said Dick. Lead on, but don't get a shot. They went cautiously through the bushes to the bank of the river, and then the sergeant blew softly between his fingers. Two figures at once appeared on the other side, and Sergeant Whitley and the boys rose up. Mr. Brayton and Mr. Henderson, said the sergeant politely, I want to introduce my friends, Lieutenant Mason, Lieutenant Warner, and Lieutenant Pennington. Moving in mighty good company, though, young, Dan, said Brayton, who was about Whitley's age and build. They're officers and they're young, as you say, said Whitley, but they're good ones. Them's the kind we eat alive when we ain't got anything else to eat, said the Mississippian, a very tall, sallow, and youngish man. We're never too strong on rations, and when I eat prisoners I like em under twenty the best. They ain't had time to get tough. I speak right now for that yellow-haired one in the middle. You can't swallow me, said Pennington good-naturedly. I'll just turn myself crossways and stick in your throat. What are you fellers after around here, anyway? continued the Mississippian. The weather's hot, and we all want to go and swim in tomorrow, being as we have two rivers handy. Sure as you live, if you get to bothering us, we'll hurt you. You won't hurt us, said Dick, because tomorrow we're going to surround you and drive you into a coop. Drive us in a coop. See here, Yank, you're getting excited. Do you know how many men we have here waiting for you? Of course you don't. Why, it's four hundred thousand, ain't it, Bill? No, it's just two hundred thousand. I don't believe in line for effect, Jim. I ain't line. There's two hundred thousand men. Then there's Bobby Lee. That's a hundred thousand more, which makes three hundred thousand. Then there's Stonewall Jackson, who's another hundred thousand, which brings the figures up to exactly what I said, four hundred thousand. Now ain't I right, Bill? You surely are, Jim. I was a fool for counting the way I did. Will you overlook it this time? Well, I will this time, but be sure you don't do it again. Now see here, you Yanks, we like you well enough. Your friend's a Bill, who is a friend of me. Just you take my advice and go home. Start tonight while the weather is warm and the roads are good. If you're afraid of our chasing you, we'll give you a running start of a hundred miles. Well, that's rightly kind of you, said Whitley. I, for one, might take your advice, but I was froze up so much in them wild mountains and plains in the northwest that I like to go south when the winter's coming on. It's hot now, all right, but in two months the chilly blast will be seeking my marrow. I was speaking for your own good, said the Mississippian gravely. Anyway, you won't be troubled by the cold weather, because if you don't go back to the north where you belong, we'll be taking you a prisoner way down south where you don't belong. But you could have a good time there. We won't treat you bad. There's fine hunting for bars in the canebrake, and the rivers and bayous are full of fish. Your captivity won't be downright painful on you. Glad to get your welcome, Mr. Henderson, said Whitley, because we've heard a lot about the hospitality of Mississippi, and we're surely going to stretch it. I'm coming, and I'm bringing a couple of hundred thousand fellers about my size with me. Funny thing, we'll all wear blue coats just alike. Think you'd find room for us? Plenty of it. What was it the feller said? We welcome you with bloody hands to hospitable graves? But we ain't feeling that way tonight. Got a plug of tobacco? The sergeant took out a square of tobacco, 
cut it in exact halves with his pocket-knife, and tossed one half across the Antietam, where it was deftly caught by the Mississippian. "'Thanks mightily,' said Henderson. "'Mr. Commissary Banks used to supply us with good things, then it was Mr. Commissary Pope, and now I reckon it'll be Mr. Commissary McClellan. Say, how many fellers have you got over there, anyway?' "'One I counted em last night,' replied the sergeant calmly. "'There was five hundred and twelve thousand two hundred and fifty-three infantry.' sixty-four thousand two hundred and nineteen cavalry, and three thousand one hundred and seventy-five cannon. But I reckon we'll receive reinforcements of three hundred thousand before morning. Then we'll have more prisoners than I thought. Are you sure then three hundred thousand reinforcements will get up in time? Quite sure. I've sent em word to hurry. Then we'll have to take them, too. Time you fellers quit your talking, said Brayton. A major or a colonel may come strolling long here any minute, and they don't like for us fellers to be too friendly. Dan, I'm powerful glad to see you again, and I hope you won't get killed. I've a feeling that you and me will be riding over the plains once more some day, and we won't be fighting each other. We'll be fighting Sioux and Cheyennes and all that red lot, just as we did in the old days. Here's a good-bye. He thrust out the muzzle of his gun, and Whitley thrust out his. Then they shook them at each other in a friendly salute, and the little group moved away from the river bank. "'I'm glad I've seen Bill again,' said the sergeant. "'Fine feller in that Mississippi with him was quaint-like. Mighty big bragger.' "'You did some bragging yourself, sergeant,' said Dick. "'So I did, but it was an answer to Henderson. I'm glad we had that little talk across the river. It was a friendly thing to do, before we fall to slaughtering one another.' They rejoined Colonel Winchester, and Dick worked through a part of the night carrying orders and other messages. A great movement was going on. Fresh troops were continually coming up, but there was little noise beyond the Antietam, although he saw the light of many fires. He slept after midnight and awoke at dawn, expecting to go at once into battle. Some of the troops were moved about, and Colonel Winchester began to rage again. "'Good God! Can it be possible?' he exclaimed. "'Then another day will be lost.' Is General McClellan, instead of General Lee, waiting for Jackson to come? With the enemy safely within the trap, we refuse to shut it down upon him. He said these things only within the hearing of Dick, who he knew would never repeat them. But he was not the only one to complain. Men higher in rank than he, generals, spoke their discontent openly. Why would not McClellan attack? He had claimed that the rebels had two hundred thousand men at the seven days, when it was well known that half that figure or less was their true number. Why should he persist in seeing the enemy double, and even if Lee did have fifty thousand men on the other side of the Antietam, instead of the twenty thousand the scouts assigned to him, the Army of the Potomac could defeat him before Jackson came up? But McClellan was overcome by caution. In spite of everything, he doubled or tripled the numbers of the enemy. Personally brave, beyond dispute, he feared for his enemy. The position of the enemy on the peninsula seemed to have changed somewhat through the night. He believed that the batteries had been moved about, and he telegraphed to Washington that he must find out exactly the disposition of Lee's forces and where the fords were. Meanwhile, the long, hot hours dragged on. The dust trodden up by so many marching feet was terrible. It hung in clouds and added a sting to the burning heat. Dick was wild with impatience, but he knew that it was not worth while to say anything. He, Warner, and Pennington, for the lack of something else to do, lay on the dry grass, whispering and watching as well as they could what was going on in Sharpsburg. Meanwhile, Sharpsburg itself seemed a monument to peace. It was deep in dust, and the sun blazed on the roofs. 
staff officers rode up and when they dismounted they lazily led their horses to the best shade that could be found within a residence lee sat in close conference with his lieutenants stonewall jackson and longstreet now and then they looked at the reports of brigade commanders and sometimes they studied the maps of maryland and virginia lee was calm and confident the odds against him and he knew what they were apparently mattered nothing he knew the strength and spirit of his army and to what pitch it was keyed by victory moreover he knew mcclellan whom he had met at the seven days and he believed in truth he felt positive that mcclellan would delay long enough for the remainder of jackson's troops to come up upon this belief he staked the future of the confederacy in the battle to be fought there between the potomac and the antietam his troops were worn by battles and tremendous marches jackson's men in three days had marched sixty miles and had fought a battle at harper's ferry within that time also taking more than thirteen thousand prisoners never before had the foot cavalry marched so hard the men in gray ragged and many of them barefooted slept in the woods about sharpsburg all through the hot hours of the day their officers had told them that the drums and bugles would call them when needed and they sank quietly into the deepest of slumbers from where they lay red hill a spur of a mountain separated them from the union army it was only those like dick and his comrades who mounted elevations and who had powerful field glasses who could see into sharpsburg the main union force saw only the top of a church spire or two in the village but each felt fully the presence of the other and knew that the battle could not be delayed long dick in his anxiety and excitement fell asleep the heat and the waiting seemed to overpower him he did not know how long he had slept but he was awakened by the sharp call of a trumpet and when he sprang to his feet warner told him it was about four o'clock what's up he cried as he wiped the haze of heat and dust from his eyes we're about to march replied warner but as it's so late in the day i don't think it can be a general attack still i know that our division is going to cross the antietam up here the stream is narrower than it is down below and the banks are not so high look the colonel is beckoning to us here we go they sprang upon their horses and a great corps advanced toward the antietam far above the town of sharpsburg the sun had declined in the west and a breeze bringing a little coolness had begun to blow they did not see much preparation for defense beyond the river but as they advanced some cannon in the woods opened there the union cannon replied and then the brigades in blue moved forward swiftly the officers and the cavalry galloped their horses into the little river and dick felt a fierce joy as the water was dashed into his face this was action movement the attack that had been delayed so long but which was not yet too late he thought of nothing of the shells hissing and shrieking over his head and he shouted with the others in exultation as they passed the fords of the antietam and set foot on the peninsula the cannon dashed after them through the stream and up the bank a heavy rifle fire from the woods met them but the triumphant division pressed on they were held back at the edge of the woods by cannon aiding the rifles and for some time a battle swayed back and forth but the confederate resistance ceased suddenly infantry and batteries disappeared in woods or beyond a ridge and then dick noticed that night was coming the sun was already hidden by the lofty slopes of the western mountains and there would be no battle that day in another half hour full darkness would be upon them but dick felt that something had been achieved a powerful union force was now beyond the antietam with its feet rooted firmly in the soil of the peninsula it looked directly south at the confederate army and there was no barrier between them lee would have to face at once hooker on the north and mcclellan on the east across the antietam the union army had been numerous enough to outflank him dick was quite sure of success now 
They had lost two of the most precious of all days instead of one, but they had closed the gap on the north, through which Lee's army might march in an attempt to escape. It was likely, too, that the last of Jackson's men would come that way, and the Union force would cut them off from Lee. Two entire army corps were now beyond the Antietam, and they should be able to do anything. The Winchester Regiment lay in deep woods, and the great division, although it had rested nearly all the day, was quiet in the night. But some ardent souls could not rest. A group of officers, including Colonel Winchester and the three young members of his staff, walked forward through the woods, taking the chance of stray shots from sentinels or skirmishers. But they knew that this risk was not great. They passed near a mill, its wheels and saws silent now, and presently, as the moon rose, they saw the square white walls of a building shining in its light. "'The Dunkard Church,' said one of the officers. "'I think we'd better not go any closer. The Johnnies must be lying thick close at hand.' "'The dim light off to the right must be made by their fires,' said Colonel Winchester. "'I wish I knew what troops they are. Jackson's, perhaps.' It's a rough country, and all these forests and ridges and hills will help the defense. I understand that the farms in here are surrounded by stone fences, and that, too, will help the Johnnies. But we'll get em, said another confidently. The battle can't be put off any longer, and we're bound to smash em in the morning. They remained in the darkness for a while, trying to see what was passing toward the southern lines, but they could see little. There was some rifle firing after a while, and the occasional deep note of a cannon, mostly at random and the little group walked back. "'I'm going to sleep, Dick,' said Warner. "'I've just remembered that I'm an invalid, and that if I overtask myself it will be a bad thing for McClellan tomorrow. The Colonel doesn't want us any longer, and so here goes.' "'I follow,' said Pennington. "'The dry earth is good enough for me. May I stay on top of it for the next half-century?' Warner and Pennington slept quickly, but Dick lay awake a long time, listening to the stray rifle shots and the distant boom of a cannon at far intervals. After a while he looked at his watch and saw that it was midnight. It was more than an hour later when slumber overtook him, and while he and his comrades lay there, the last of Jackson's men were coming with the help that Lee needed so sorely. Two divisions which had been left at Harper's Ferry started at midnight just as Dick was looking at his watch, and at dawn they were almost to the Potomac. On their flank was a cavalry brigade, and A.P. Hill was hurrying with another of infantry. Messenger after messenger from them came to Lee that on the fateful day they, with their fourteen thousand bayonets, would be in line when they were needed most. Few of those who fought for the lost cause ever cherished anything more vividly than those hours between midnight and the next noon when they marched at the double quick across hill and valley and forest to the relief of their great commander. There was little need for the officers to urge them on, and at sunrise the rolling of the cannon was calling to them to come faster, always faster. End of chapter 9, part 2. Recording by Katie McLean.